Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and I want to get straight into things in this episode. If you've been listening along to the podcast to this point, at least to some of the episodes along the way, you know we've spent, in particular, the last three episodes discussing and, we might say, challenging the traditional Christian doctrine of hell as eternal suffering or eternal torment for unbelievers or those judged by God to be deserving of such a fate. Uh, which, wow, that sounds like a fun conversation, doesn't it? Uh, But I've been suggesting that maybe something else is going on in the story of Jesus, in the Christian text, uh, that many of us perhaps might have been missing. I know that that I certainly was for much of my earlier Christian life. And uh, and this this belief continues to be a a contemporary issue, a hot-button issue, one of controversy and, and conflict and tension. I'm not sure where or when you're listening to this episode, but... Just recently, in the last few weeks, uh, in New Zealand and Australia, it's been in the news again as a prominent uh, sportsman uh, posted these online uh, social media posts about all of those people who need to repent, otherwise they're going to be going to hell, and including all sorts of people uh, in the gay community and others. And there's been an, you know, a real outcry, a real sense of outrage about this. Uh, and once again, the topic comes to the surface and people look at it and say, how can this be uh, congruent with some kind of message of Jesus? And it's interesting to see what goes... Now, there, there's all sorts of things going on in that conversation that I won't have a chance to get into in this episode. Perhaps we'll come back to it at a later time. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting to me is even the number of Christians who have been very quiet on this because they haven't known what to say, uh, and many who would be of the position where oh, I kind of agree with him, but I just don't think he should have said it out loud like that. And in itself, that's got its own kind of internal contradictions. And and what it shows is that this whole conversation is really a bit of a mess and that you have a lot of people who have been trained in a particular way of thinking um, that's not necessarily, in my opinion, reflective of what Christian faith is in fact supposed to be. So... All of that to say, it's going to be an ongoing conversation that the church has to wrestle with. And one of the questions that's come my way since the since this sort of series on hell that I've been doing has been to ask, well, if what I'm saying is in any way true, then why does it not seem to be the majority view of those within the Christian tradition or the church? If Christianity ultimately is not about escaping eternity and hell, then why do so many people, Christians or not, understand that this is the central message and purpose of Christianity? Uh, and that's a reasonable question, you know. If what I'm saying is true, then why does it seem to be pushing against such a large bulk of what the Christian tradition is saying? Uh, and then for some people, this entire conversation is is super confronting because if this has been one of the central cornerstones or pillars of the faith that you've believed in, the faith that's super important to you, then to question it seems to to question the entire thing, to question this one aspect. If that aspect is a big part of what the thing has been built on. Uh, can be incredibly unsettling because if we pull that out, will the whole thing come crashing down and then what am I left with? And then I'm just, uh, that's, a, that's a terrifying kind of feeling. And I think all of this is confounded by the fact that uh, modern Christianity, at least in a lot of contemporary churches, maybe not in academia, but at least in a lot of contemporary churches, not very good at having hard conversations uh, about things uh, Similar to politics, really, battle, battle lines can be drawn very quickly. So if you don't bear the marks of orthodoxy, if you're not clearly in our camp believing all of the things that we believe in the way that we believe them, 
you can quickly find yourself isolated, pushed out to the edges, uh, and that means it's very difficult to have any kind of meaningful conversation uh, about this kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's what I'm hoping to do, I guess, with this podcast is provide a space and forum for that. So what do we do with all of this? How do we make sense of it? This is episode 13 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So this episode is titled, How the Hell Did We Get Here? Uh, Which is really, I guess, another one of my attempts to try and see how many ways I can get the word hell into the title of a podcast. Um, But in this episode, I want to explore some of the key movements that contribute towards a Christian tradition that seems to both hold to very firm notions of hell as eternal suffering, something that I've been arguing against in the last few episodes, and also then a real lack of ability to discuss or to be open to different perspectives. And so I want to trace a little bit of history to help us make sense of this, uh, and probably in doing so with the time that we have, I'll make some sweeping generalizations. But the idea, the hope here is to recognize some themes that might help us to understand how we got here. So I want to start off by thinking about early Christianity. And what you have really is is early Christian faith is a subgroup of Judaism. It's a peculiar group of Jewish people in the mid or early to mid first century who happened to believe that this Jesus was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for, uh, albeit a very different kind of Messiah from the one that the Jewish people were anticipating at this time. And so from an external perspective, even though now we might see Christianity has emerged to become this very distinct religious tradition, um, early on from the, from the outside looking in, it just appeared to be this peculiar Jewish sect. And as we discussed some of the imagery, even around notions of hell and, and things like that in the previous episodes, it is kind of imagery that is grounded in a very um, Jewish first century way of seeing the world, of communicating reality, of communicating truth, the way that symbolic, symbol and metaphor function within that particular context. Uh, and it kind of made sense to a certain degree within that context, even as there was diversity within the movement from very early on in terms of what was believed. Uh, but over time, what we see even through the New Testament text is that Christianity begins to spread outward from just being a solely Jewish sect to becoming something more inclusive, something more open to non-Jewish people, what we're often call, what we're called by Jewish people Gentiles. And so uh, over the first few decades, Christianity becomes a, gen- a Gentile inclusive movement. And then Jerusalem is is destroyed uh, in AD 70, and the Jewish people are scattered. Uh, and after this time, really, Christianity does shift from, be- it's shifted from being a Jewish subgroup to then Gentile inclusive, and then now becomes predominantly Gentile. It becomes predominantly non-Jewish in terms of the constituency of early Christianity. Uh, and that's important, perhaps, because now you've got people engaging with the story of Jesus who are not necessarily uh, grounded in the stories and traditions and images and metaphors and symbols of ancient Judaism. Uh, so that has its own kind of impact on the way people read then stories and texts. Um, what you've still got really, though, at this point is a relatively small um, countercultural movement. It's, it's unusual. Even the claim of Jesus as Lord and Savior is taking the title of Caesar and applying it to Jesus because the Caesar is the one who is called Lord and Savior. So it's, it's politically controversial. It's kind of subversive in its own kind of way. People were saying, we're not going to follow Caesar in the way of the empire. 
Uh, we are going to follow this Jesus who is our Lord and Saviour. And it's religiously controversial as well, uh, not just within uh, early Judaism, as we see in the New Testament texts, but as the, the story of Jesus spreads into the Gentile world, uh, it's controversial. The, the notion that God is somehow present in the story of Jesus seemed ridiculous to many uh, non-Jewish ears, uh, especially the notion that this Jesus, who everybody seemed to be following, had been uh, executed or killed. Um, that seemed a bit nonsensical to those who are trained now in Greco-Roman philosophy and, and the tradition that came from that. And so you have uh, the small underground, often um, politically religious, religiously subversive movement um, that's sometimes persecuted quite intensely. And so depending on the region and time for the first three centuries, really, after Jesus, the church uh, had different kind of experiences. Sometimes they were just ignored as this kind of fringe group. Sometimes they were persecuted, often persecuted at a local level. And then sometimes they were persecuted at an imperial level. Uh, you know, at, at the at the level of the empire, and sometimes there was sweeping persecution that would break out against Christians, and they were seen to be problematic for all sorts of reasons. There was the religious kind of prejudice that I mentioned earlier. You know, this kind of question of how God could be present in the story of Jesus, and and in particular then in the death of Jesus. Uh, there was also class prejudice that was at work here. So as as the story of Jesus spread into uh, regions that were Important beliefs were discussed by philosophers and by the elite uh, of society. Um, you had Christians who were doing what at the time were very degrading things like uh, providing funeral services for the poor, for example. So there's historical record of, uh, which, which in a very status-based society was a very unusual and countercultural thing to do, uh, was to, you know, funerals were only provided for the rich, for example. And so Christians were kind of mocked for this. But it's also, it's threatening in its own way to have people behaving like that because it challenges the status quo. Uh, and, um, that you know, in, in a similar sense, uh, early Christians were also advocating for literacy, for slaves and for women. And so they were breaking down a lot of the status markers that held people, that held essentially the Roman Empire together. And so... Um, there was this religious prejudice, but there's also this sense of you aren't you aren't playing by the rules. You are disrupting the system, and you are subverting the way in which the Roman Empire itself is held together. So, uh, these bursts of persecution would break out against Christians at various times. In the late third century, many were many Christians were killed for refusing to join the army. For example, the army of the empire. Uh, many Christian buildings and books were destroyed. They get their privileges taken away. Many church leaders were arrested. And so uh, I think what's interesting to note about that is that in a sense, uh, what we see here in the first few centuries of the church coheres quite well with what you see in the New Testament text, even if in a different context, which is um, it's the language of protest from the underside of the empire, you know, and so in the, in the, in the first century, uh, the story of Jesus emerging as this Jewish Messiah is the story of of a Messiah who, who emerges amongst a small group of people under the thumb of the empire. And so a lot of the language of protest and a lot of the symbolism and imagery uh, makes sense when you interpret it from the perspective of these people who are oppressed and downtrodden and who are trying to make sense of how the story of Jesus might transform and change everything for them. Uh, and in these first few centuries of the church, this is a similar kind of experience 
um, and many of the early defenders of Christianity uh, were not um, powerful people, but they were seeking to defend their faith against those who mocked them and ridiculed them and thought it was ridiculous and so on. Uh, And so it's helpful to note because there's a problem that happens later on, and we'll get to this in a moment. When Christianity becomes associated with power and with empire, the same words that might have been in the mouths of those who are an oppressed minority put into the mouths of an oppressive majority sound very, very different. You know, um, you can think about that even now in today's society. If you were to take uh, the words that, you know, I think of in, the, in North America, even, um, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter versus all, all Lives Matter kind of language and the way in which language functions depending on the power dynamic that's at play there. And so the words in the mouths of those who are who are suffering and who are under um, some form of oppression or prejudice or marginalization um, are understandable and make sense in those contexts. But when those same words are taken by those with power and used from a different perspective, then suddenly it takes on a different kind of meaning and tone and emphasis and the impact uh, is different also. So... That's just something to bear in mind as we go along. Now, what we have here in these first few centuries actually is still a very diverse tradition. And so if we come back to our ideas about hell that we've been discussing over the last few episodes, well, there are, there are a number of these early church theologians who hold to a much more universalist position. And, and sure, there are those who advocate for some kind of eternal punishment when they read those texts and read those stories. Uh, but there are a number of people who advocate for some kind of uh, universalist uh, message that's present within um, the story of Jesus. So there's this melting pot of of discussion and ideas uh, and arguments that are going on at this time. Now the big shift uh, that happens, and I want to touch on a few big shifts over the over the last couple of thousand years that help us understand how we get to where we are. But the really big shift, I guess, that still remains so um, potent in its impact on the Christian tradition is uh, the shift that takes place with Constantine. And so Constantine is, is a, a Roman who defeats Maxentius, becomes the emperor in 312, uh, has this vision uh, in this sign conquer and sees the vision of a cross, associates this vision of the cross with his political and military victory. And so ultimately decides as he becomes the emperor uh, that the Roman Empire should convert to Christianity. And so that's the trajectory of the story is that ultimately, uh, essentially, Christianity moves from uh, quite recently before August, uh, before Constantine being persecuted, uh, being killed, um, being oppressed, uh, suddenly surges to becoming the favoured religion of the empire. And that's a, that's a significant and profound shift in the place of Christianity uh, within society. And so for the first time, being a Christian with it actually brought advantage. So you had special tax concessions if you joined the church. Uh, To be in clergy, to be in some kind of position of ministry leadership suddenly became a position of power, not just within the church, but also within the empire, because now this has become the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. So it's at this time that you see ministers, uh, you know, the clergy who start to wear particular kind of clothing uh, that symbolizes this kind of power differential that's starting to take place here. Now, uh, Constantine doesn't actually convert 
to Christianity himself officially until his deathbed. It's the old convenient deathbed con- uh, conversion tactic. Um, but what he does really, what he does uh, encourage and want is the unity of the church. Now, that sounds like a really wonderful thing. It wouldn't it be great if the church was unified? Um, but the reasons for this are perhaps less appealing, um, from one perspective at least. Because really his, his desire for unity was because disagreement in the church is a threat to the stability of the empire. If the church has now become the central religion of the empire and, and you know, unlike now when we have these, these clear demarcations between church and state, or at least we attempt to, um, in, in this time there were no such demarcations. But religion and state were always inextricably linked. And so when Christianity becomes the religion of the empire, well, then it becomes vital to the flourishing and stability of the empire. So when there are significant theological differences that emerge within the church, uh, and these theological differences create tension, conflict, disagreement, and groups of people who start arguing with one another, well, then that becomes, in the minds of the politicians, a threat to stability. And so uh, people like Constantine greatly favour this idea of orthodoxy as a stabilising force politically. Uh, So one of the things that happens in the 4th century, for example, is we get the first of the church councils, so the Council of Nicaea, which is in 325, uh, where everybody agrees that this is what should be in the New Testament and also make uh, some agreements around beliefs on Jesus and, and a few other things. Not important necessarily for our discussion today. But what we do see is that these councils are brought together to resolve theological differences. And on the one hand, this could, this could be understood as a positive thing. You know, there's a clarifying of belief that's going on. But on the other hand, it's also, it's hard to avoid the fact that this is being carried out in service of the unity of the empire. With, so this, is a, this has political implications and aims. And what happens in the wake of these church councils is we really begin the long-time Christian tradition of expelling those, or later on we end up killing those, who lose theological arguments or hold to non-approved beliefs, the ones who get labelled as heretics. And this is a trend that continues. Now, in the post-Constantine empire, so after Constantine dies, uh, what happens is there's this transition where the church begins to see the emperor as the leader of the church. Uh, And so ultimately, as the Roman Empire breaks down, the last emperor really makes himself the first official Pope, really, you could you could you could say it that way. That's an oversimplification, but let's just say it that way. And so you've had this transition, whereby even as the Roman Empire disintegrates, the Church emerges as the powerful stabilizing force across that part of the world. And uh, the idea here is that maybe in some way this alliance of Christianity and power and empire and militarization could make Christian Christianity and Christianization of the whole world possible. And so there's these strong connections between the New Testament language of the kingdom of God and essentially the power of the empire, which is ultimately so counter to the notion of the kingdom of God as this uh, upside-down uh, kingdom. And so we've got the empire, which has now become equivalent in many respects to the church. And so the church comes to have an army, its own military force. Orthodoxy becomes not just a theological conversation, but becomes a matter of control and stability 
enforced with violence. So that's a profound shift in the kind of church, kind of Christianity uh, that we're talking about and its relationship with society and with power and with how to navigate uh, theological conversations, even uh, and ideas of belief. Now, another thing that happens here is in the Western tradition in particular, uh, the, there's a theologian by the name of Augustine who really does give significant shape to Western Christian theology. And two of his particular ideas, uh, one was the doctrine of original sin, which is Augustine's you know, um, development, which is essentially that all human beings are born depraved, are born sinners because of the inheritance of sin all the way from Adam and Eve. And then uh, this idea of eternal torment, of hell as eternal torment. These are these are two of Augustine's big ideas that really entrenched themselves. So we had a real diversity of thought. These now entrenched themselves as the majority opinion of, uh, of the Christian church, in the West at least. Um, now, Augustine, even in his arguments for hell as some kind of eternal torment, um, is frustrated and argues that many people, uh, and one, in fact, one translation of his text says that most hold at this time to universalism, universalism of some form, and he's pushing back against that idea and ultimately essentially wins the argument uh, from the church's perspective, and it becomes, it's not put in any of the church creeds, but it really becomes by about the 6th century a matter of orthodoxy. And so now people who disagree with hell as eternal suffering for unbelievers are now expelled from the church. So that's a that's an important shift to note as well. Then in the 11th century, uh, you have uh, Dante, who's really uh, quite an extraordinary um, thinker, artist, provocateur, uh, wants to challenge uh, the alliance of the church with empire and does so in part through the writing of Dante's comedy and this uh, this tale of these people's entry into the seven uh, circles of hell. And whilst within that, again, there's all of the symbolism and imagery that's taking place there, it's the subsequent over-literalization of Dante that's truly problematic. And... Um, and all of the artwork that is uh, spun out of a reflection on Dante's uh, comedy, and in particular the Inferno of Hell that he describes at the centre of this notion of hell. And so all of this artwork depicting this very literal kind of fire, uh, suffering and so on, grips the imagination of the Western Christian from very early on, from the 11th century uh, here, building on Augustine um, and some of the other early church fathers and so you have this entrenchment in the mind, and now you have this vivid imagery to go along with it. Um, it gets kind of immortalized in paintings and in artwork uh, and becomes people's uh, main concrete way of thinking about life after death for those who are outside of the church. Now, a few centuries later, you then have the Reformation. And if you're not familiar with church history, uh, this is around the 16th century, uh, starts with Luther, continues with Calvin and, num- and a number of others, which essentially protest against, hence the name Protestant, uh, protest against certain beliefs of the Catholic Church. Uh, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the wall, uh, protesting against certain beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church at that time, which really had, in many respects, become quite corrupt. And... 
Uh, and so you have Protestantism emerge. And if Catholicism was at this time a complicated mixture of power and empire, but also out on the margins you had forms of resistance and you had the mystics and you had still those engaging in symbolism and imagery and metaphor. Uh, so Catholicism at this time is a really complicated mix. Um, but the Protestant Reformation is really an attempt to try and purify Christianity, to get rid of the control of the Catholic Church uh, and maybe some of its excesses and some of its um, corruption. But as often happens with the attempt to kind of purify a movement, you end up doubling down on certain things. And so a few things that the Protestant Reformation doubled down on, uh, one was uh, the idea of expunging those, of expelling those who didn't hold to the approved version of things. And so because you're trying to purify a movement, uh, you can get very, and in fact, in a sense, this is similar to what happened in the first century amongst religious leaders of the day, in this attempt to purify the movement, you get very rigid about uh, what people need to believe and how they need to believe it. So uh, that thing that we saw, that problematic way of uh, expelling, of excommunicating people within the Catholic Church continues into the Protestant Church as well. And then this Christian message of Jesus as saving us from hell, um, which is present centrally within the Catholic Church at this time, gets um, distilled down into into an even smaller nugget of of, of a claim in the Protestant uh, tradition. And so uh, this is perhaps not helped by the fact that one of the the prominent reformers, John Calvin, was a lawyer in a previous life before he becomes a theologian. He very much interprets the, the, the death of Jesus in this legal framework whereby um, we are deserving of hell because we are depraved. But Jesus steps in and takes our punishment upon himself. And so uh, God is able to forgive us because God does not see us. God sees instead the price paid by Jesus and so on. Uh, this is a, a theological framework that really emerges in, with Calvin in the 16th century. And it's this very courtroom-based legal framework. It's categorization. It's in, out, guilty, not guilty. Uh, and the way you get to be not guilty is essentially is because Jesus is not guilty. And so if you side with Jesus, then you get to be not guilty. Otherwise, you're deserving of everything that comes your way, including an eternity of suffering in hell. So um, we really see the impact of this in modern Christianity. Uh, and now I'm, I'm looking beyond the Catholic Church in particular. Uh, and in particular to evangelicalism, fundamentalism, even Pentecostalism, emerge in this kind of tradition. And these are movements today with lots of vitality, it'd have to be said, uh, where a lot of growth is occurring. Um, but sometimes that vitality comes because of the harsh boundary lines, um, because of the real clear demarcations of in and out. You're with us or you're out and you're going to you know, suffer and so you need to get in so that you can get saved. Well, that's a real recipe for energy and for enthusiasm and for vitality. Um, you know, that's what harsh, firm, strict boundary lines often create. Uh, and certainly if you feel like uh, you dissent in any kind of way, you might be more a threat of going to hell when you die. Well, then that's a pretty good incentive to, to stick within the system. So that's, if you like trying to get a sense of how we end up where we end up uh, with a couple of things that I've tried to highlight along this journey. One is this idea of hell as eternal suffering for unbelievers is not necessarily the primary way of reading the Christian story in the early centuries, 
but it certainly becomes that. And secondly, it becomes that in a way that is enforced by a religious tradition that has become powerful, that has become obsessed with drawing lines, with tribalism, with with deciding who is in and who is out as a way of controlling people and managing people and generating stability and compliance. So that's kind of how we get here. And this is my reading of the story. And I'm certainly not arguing that my way of understanding Christianity is superior to everybody in the last 2,000 years because it's a mixed tradition, right? It's it's a complicated mixed tradition of all sorts of people arguing for different things. Um, there is a lot in it that has been helpful and transformative for many people and continues to be so. Um, and yet at the same time, we need to be honest, I think, about the challenges that are present here too, the challenges with power and the challenges with certain kind of theological beliefs that act to sustain and maintain that kind of power. Um, the way Christianity aligned with power and empire in the 4th century has been a profoundly problematic move. Uh, and it wasn't just a political one, it's impacted on the theology of the church as well. And and I think, you know, maybe one of the reasons people feel so threatened and challenging this idea of hell as eternal suffering, you know, we could look at it from this from a couple of perspectives. To those with power, hell is a very potent mechanism for managing people. And even if you're not doing that consciously, often that's what's taking place subconsciously. Um, and then on the other side of that, to those who are participating in the system, uh, well, then hell becomes a really potent reason for staying within that system. And and I think one of the reasons people feel so threatened in challenging this whole belief, um, this belief of hell as eternal suffering, is because many people think that without this, people wouldn't be Christians. People wouldn't keep coming, keep attending, keep supporting the institution. Because it wouldn't be clear that we're the in ones and other people out there are the out ones. So what might happen if we let go of this? And to be honest, I think what it indicates is that for many Christians, beyond an escape from hell, they're not actually convinced that Christianity is, that their faith is really truly worth it. Um, And they might argue about that, but the reason I say that is maybe because I've said so often the number one response to challenging the doctrine of hell in my experience is, but then what's the point of Christianity? And that tells me that many people aren't convinced that there's as much point as they think in their Christian faith uh, if hell is not the thing that they're escaping from. So I hope that what I'm trying to do here is provide some sense of context for how we get here and for the fact that what I'm suggesting and advocating might be pushing against the bulk of some forms of the Christian tradition, but that all throughout Christian history, there have been diversity of opinions, even if they've been crushed and and expunged and pushed to the side and pushed to the edge. There have always been those who have been advocating for a uh, a more, what I would say is a more Jesus-oriented way of understanding Christian faith. Now, of course, I would say that, wouldn't I, because I'm arguing from my point of view. But but I, I do believe that. And I, and I do think that in the early centuries uh, after Jesus, we see much more of that than we do now. So my suggestion is that if you're someone who finds themselves immersed within, connected to, or, or even just drawn to the Christian faith, well, giving up in belief in eternal suffering and hell does not mean the end of Christian faith. 
In fact, I'd argue that it's the beginning of rediscovering something profound and something beautiful and meaningful and subversive and transformative. And it's not grounded in fear or punishment or tribalism and in and out, but it's inviting us, it's challenging us, calling us to live differently in the world, to be invited into personal and communal transformation. So that's how we got here. Next time on In The Shift, we're going to start talking about uh, the central pivot, the central image of Christianity, which is the cross. How does the symbol of a state execution become the central symbol of a faith? And what does it mean, especially if Jesus doesn't die to rescue us from hell? Then why does Jesus die? What's going on in this story? And so we're going to start talking about that next time on In The Shift.